Genesis chapter 29, beginning our reading in verse 1. We'll read down to verse 12 and then proceed somewhat through the chapter in the remaining part of our service. Genesis chapter 29, verse 1. Then Jacob went on his journey and came into the land of And he looked, and behold, a well in the field. And lo, there were three flocks of sheep lying by it. For out of that well they watered the flocks, and a great stone was upon the well's mouth. And thither were all the flocks gathered. And they rolled the stone from the well's mouth, and watered the sheep, and put the stone again upon the well's mouth in his place. Jacob said unto them, My brethren, whence be ye? And they said, Of Haran are we. And he said unto them, Know ye Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. And he said unto them, Is he well? And they said, He is well. And behold, Rachel his daughter cometh with the sheep. And he said, Lo, it is yet high. Neither is it time that the cattle should be gathered together. Water ye the sheep and go and feed them. And they said, We cannot. Until all the flocks be gathered together, until they roll the stone from the well's mouth, then we water the sheep. And while he yet spake with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she kept them. And it came to pass, when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth, and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. And Jacob kissed Rachel And lift up his voice and wept. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's brother and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. We trust the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his precious word. When we were last in Genesis, in chapter 28, we saw how Jacob came to know the Lord as his saviour at Bethel. And that was a day, of course, that he would never forget. And he built an altar there. And now he has to press on. His goal is to get to Padan Aram to find a bride in the home of his relatives in keeping with his parents' instruction. And so when we come to this chapter and we read the opening line, which seems fairly innocuous, and I guess it is, but it says, Then Jacob went on. Now, you don't get this in the English language, but in the Hebrew language, uh, the idea here is that not just that he moved on, but he moved on with a bounce in a step. It quite literally reads in the Hebrew, then Jacob lifted his feet. He lifted his feet. He was newly saved. He was happy in Jesus, we might say. Happy as a salmon boy. You know, he's walking on air. Do you remember the day you were saved? Do you remember how joyous you felt? Do you remember how glad you were to know the Lord? Do you remember having that little bounce in your step? I don't know about you, but certainly in my case, I was very glad to be saved. I remember the morning after I was saved, going to work, going, walking down our street, heading to get the bus to work. And you know, for, this is absolutely true. I was 17 years of age. For the first time in my life, I noticed birds singing. I never actually heard, I'm sure I heard a bird sing, but it never dawned on me. 
It never registered with my conscience, consciousness that there was a beauty in bird song. And so I was walking down the road thinking, my goodness, the birds are lovely. Listen, and then I looked in the gardens and, and, the, and the flowers looked lovely and everything looked lovely. You know, I was walking on air. You know, the songwriter puts it this way, birds with gladder songs or flow, flowers with deeper beauties shine. My goodness, that's how it was. And that's how it was for Jacob as he left Bethel and he made his way to Padanaram. Now, chapter 28 was a hilltop experience. Chapter 29 is a valley experience. And like all new converts, Jacob can't stay on the mountaintop forever. He has to step down into the valley. You see, God is only beginning his work in him. There's much to be done in Jacob's life. There's still a lot of Jacob in Jacob. And we'll see that in this chapter as he maneuvers his way through life. But Jacob is about to meet his match in his devious old uncle, Laban. Now notice in verses 1 through 12 where we just read his arrival in the land. And the first thing I I want you to observe in this chapter is that as far as Jacob is concerned, God doesn't get a mention. Here he is and he's going to make some rather drastic life-changing decisions. He's going to make a decision about a wife. He's going to make a decision about employment. He's going to make a decision about where he's going to live. These are grand and life-changing choices. And uh, yet with all, he's not looking to the Lord. There's no sense of him calling upon uh, his his Savior to help him make these decisions. No, he's just living by his own wits. He's moving by his own instincts. I wonder, are we guilty of that sometimes? Making life-changing decisions, but never inquiring of the Lord. Making determinations that are going to set the course for the rest of our days. But never taking time to go into the prayer closet and say, Lord, what would you have me to do? Well, that's where Jacob was. And in time he arrives by a well. And there are three flocks of sheep gathered there with their shepherds beside them. Evidently, you know, there had been some arrangement at this well that the owner uh, uh, would send some folks along and everybody would just have to wait until uh, his men opened the mouth of the well and then you could water your flocks. And so Jacob comes to this well. He discovers these shepherds. They're waiting there for the well to be opened. And he enters into conversation with them. He himself is a shepherd, so he, you know, he's one of their own, so to speak. And so he strikes up this conversation. It turns out they are from Haran. Now you remember that Haran is the name of Abraham's brother. It's also the name of a town which Abraham's brother founded. And so Jacob has family connections in that town. And he thinks to himself, well, maybe these fellows would be able to help me here. You know, I'm looking for Abraham's family. I'm looking for, uh, I'm looking for Laban. I'm, I'm looking for someone that uh, might know him. And so he, uh, he asks this question. Know ye Laban, the son of Nahor? He says, hey, do you guys, do you happen to know a guy called Laban? You know, his, his dad's Nahor, my uncle. And listen to their terse reply. Notice what it says there. They reply... We know him. Verse 5. Now you've got you to imagine how they're saying this. 
In fact, if you look at it carefully, notice the word him is italicized in your authorized version, which means that's not in the original. So he says to them, uh, do, you know, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they go, we know. Oh yeah, we know him, all right. Laban has a reputation. Laban has a name. It's not a goodness, it's not a good reputation, it's not a good name. Listen, then Jacob says, is he well? Yes, he's well. That's all they say about him. They're not interested in talking about Laban. We know him and he's, and he's well. That's all we're going to say. Yes, he's well. Oh, and by the way, behold, Rachel, his daughter, comes now with the sheep. And I want you to see that from the moment he sets eyes upon her, Jacob is in love. You know, some people don't believe in it, but there is such a thing as love at first sight. Jacob fell in love with her the moment he saw her. Now, man, I know after this service your wives are going to ask you that question. Did you fall in love with me at first sight? You've got some praying to do on the way home in the car. That's all I'm going to say. But Jacob fell in love with Rachel at first sight. The moment he sees her. And, uh, you know, this is considered one of the great romantic stories of the Bible. Seeing Rachel coming, Jacob urges the men in verse 7 to move on. He, he says to them, Lo, it's yet high day. Neither is it time that the cattle should be gathered together. What are you, the sheep, and go and feed them? In other words, he says, listen, fellas, it's, you know, day's going on here. You should have been away by now. Why don't you get your sheep watered and move on? What's he doing here? He doesn't want any competition. He doesn't want to be in a battle for Rachel's affection. He wants these guys offside. So that he can have personal time with her. But they couldn't move on. Because they have to wait there until the officials come and they roll the stone from the well's mouth. And it seems to be that these officials belong to Laban. That this is Laban's well because... This happens as soon as Rachel arrives and there's evidently people uh, with her because they uh, point out that they can't do it until they roll the stone from the well's mouth, not just Rachel, but those uh, who are with her. And so Jacob rolls the stone. He's probably trying to impress her. He's trying to make his mark on her, you know, like young men do. Now he's not a young man, he's 70 years old, but he's never been married. He's trying to make his mark. He's trying to say to her, you know, I'm the guy. I'm the man that you want to be interested in. And as she comes and she arrives at the scene, Jacob approaches her and he kisses her. Now, this is not a romantic kiss. It's a, a cultural thing. It's a greeting kiss. And yet the kiss probably took her by surprise because even at that, even in a cultural kiss, you didn't kiss anyone that you didn't know personally or you didn't have some relationship to. So Jacob then introduced himself as Rebecca's son, her cousin, and she runs off to tell her father that Jacob has come. Now, why, why all the excitement? Well, you've got to bear in mind, this was in the day before, you know, email. It was in the day before the Royal Mail. It was in the day before the Pony Express. You know, news didn't travel quickly in these days. And it had been probably about a hundred years since they had heard as a family from their Aunt Rebecca. So Jacob's arrival is actually big news. We've got news from Aunt Rebecca. Remember Aunt Rebecca that left with Isaac? Well, here's her son. You know, isn't this good news? And she rushes off 
to, to tell her father. So this was his arrival with Laban. But notice his arrangements with Laban, verse 13. And it came to pass when Laban heard the tidings of Jacob, his sister's son, that he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. And he told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely thou art my bone and my flesh. And he abode with him the space of a month. And Laban said unto Jacob, Because thou art my brother, shouldest thou therefore serve me for naught? Tell me what shall thy wages be? And Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. Leah was tender-eyed. And Rachel was beautiful and well-favored. And Jacob loved Rachel and said, I will serve thee, serve thee seven years for Rachel, thy younger daughter. And Laban said, It is better that I give her to thee than that I should give her to another man. Abide with me. Now, when you see Laban's response to Jacob, bear in mind he's never met the man in his life before, you have to acknowledge the very warm and welcoming response there in verse 13. It says, He ran to meet him, he embraced him, he kissed him, he brought him into his home. He invites him in. Now, when he had last heard from Jacob's family, when Eliezer, the servant of, uh, of Abraham, had come and petitioned that Rebekah be given to marry Isaac, remember that the servant brought with him jewels of silver and jewels of gold and clothing for Laban. And so when Laban hears, hey, there's somebody back from Abraham's house, he probably thinks, Kerching, it's payday. He'll bring me some silver, he'll bring me some gold, he'll, he'll bring me some clothes. But Laban doesn't realize that Jacob has left home penniless, that he's a refuge on the run from his brother Esau's wrath. Nevertheless, in keeping with Eastern hospitality, he's given a roof over his head in Laban's home and he stays there about one month. And evidently, in return for his board, Jacob served Laban during that time. So his uncle says, Shouldest thou serve me for naught? Tell me, what shall thy wages be? In other words, I'm not going to take advantage of you just because we're related. You know, you're putting in some time in my farm. How much would you like me to pay you? And it seems reasonable enough, but you've got to understand who we're dealing with here. We're dealing with a man who, well, let's just say he's not a very good character. And it seems that he's noticed that Jacob has an eye for his daughter. Fathers always notice when men have an eye for their daughters. We keep an eye out for this kind of thing. And Laban had been keeping an eye out on his daughters and he saw how Jacob looked at Rachel and he knew what direction they were going and what, what the thoughts were that Jacob had concerning her. And so he began to concoct a little plan in his mind and in so doing we find that the cheater, Jacob, is about to be cheated. Now notice carefully the description of Laban's two girls in verse 17. It says... Leah was tender-eyed. Now, some people read that and they say, well, that means that she was very gentle in her countenance, that she was very compassionate-looking, that she was very kindly in her appearance. But the term literally means that she was weak-eyed, that she had a lazy eye, 
or we might say that she was cross-eyed. Now, some preachers will say, well, that's very unkind on Leah. Of course, we don't have a photograph of her. So we don't know, you know, was she just tender, you know, tender looking or was she cross-eyed? So we don't know for sure. But what we do know is that Rachel's description is given in contrast to Leah's description. So whereas it says Leah was tender-eyed, it says, but Rachel was beautiful. Now the word but there is a word of contrast. And it suggests that there's a difference between the two girls. It suggests that the one was very attractive, but the other was less so. That Rachel was very beautiful, but Rachel, or but Leah, well, she, she may have been cross-eyed. She had this defect. And to make matters worse, Rachel is the blue-eyed girl of the family. Well, here is Jacob's first love. Look in verse 18. It says, And Jacob loved Rachel... And said, I will serve thee seven years for Rachel, thy younger daughter. Now, what was it about Rachel that Jacob loved? Well, let me just help you out. It was her beauty. She was a stunner. She was good looking. She was drop dead gorgeous. She was that girl, you know, when, when a boy comes into the room and there's a group of people, his eyes are set on her. She caught his attention, pure and simple. It was her looks. That's what attracted him to her. And he was besotted with her. And Laban knew that he was besotted with her. And like most fathers know, he knew there was a day coming when he was going to lose his girl. He was going to lose his daughter. And so by this stage, he also knows that Jacob has come into his home empty-handed. There is no silver. There is no gold. There are no clothes. And so what's a man going to do in that situation? If you were here last Sunday evening, we talked about this with Joseph and Mary in the Gospel of Matthew and how that uh, in that time a man would pay a dowry, a, a mohar uh, to, his, uh, to his bride's father. He would make some down payment to uh, compensate him for the loss of his daughter. And if he didn't have money, what would he do? Well, he'd have to work and he'd have to serve in some way in order to get the daughter's hand in marriage. And so that's what happens here. Jacob, having come empty-handed, has to make some means and way whereby he can satisfy Laban and uh, pay him something in some form so that he will give his blessing to the wedding. And so Laban says, What shall thy wages be? What shall thy wages be? And notice what happens. Jacob makes the most amazing offer in verse 18. It says, Jacob loved Rachel and said, I will serve thee seven years for Rachel, thy younger daughter. Now that's a remarkable offer. Uh, Let me explain something to you. Uh, Casual laborers in Babylon receive between six to twelve shekels a year. But Jacob's offer is actually worth between 42 and 84 shekels. In other words, it was a hugely magnanimous offer. It was tremendously generous. And needless to say, Laban jumped at it. Verse 19, he says, it's better that I give her to thee than that I should give her to another man. Of course it is. His payday's come. He's more than happy. 
And such was Jacob's love for Rachel. We read of his faithful labor in verse 20. And Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed unto him but a few days for the love he had to her. Now that latter part of the verse, just it just exudes romance, doesn't it? I mean, what's there not the like in that verse? Those seven years seemed unto him to be a few days for the love he had to her. Time just flew by. No matter what he did, no matter how difficult his day, no matter how hard his labor, no matter how much sweat he lost in the course of his work, it was nothing to him. He was working to that day, looking forward to that day when he could marry his beloved uh, Rachel. And, and people look at this and they, uh, you know, they coo and they call over this. And they go, oh, Jacob and Rachel, you know, they're kind of like the posh and backs of the Bible, you know, or, or somebody like that, you know. Some romantic couple in our culture, you might link them to. The poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge famously said of, his, of this act that no man could be a bad man who loved as much as Jacob loved. But wait a minute. Jacob committed himself to a marriage and to servitude without a single word of prayer. And he did so Without reference to God. He was moved by Rachel's beauty alone. He was guided by his hormones, not by the Spirit of God. You know, romantic love, you know, the the old song is is that love is a many-splendored thing. And, and, you know, that may well be true. But it can be the means whereby we enter into a relationship that maybe we ought not to be in. You know, the old saying is that love is blind, but marriage, that's a real eye-opener. You heard that one? And that's where Jacob's at. He's blinded by his love. Rachel was beautiful, Leah less so. But as we'll see, God's blessing is actually resting upon Leah more than it is upon Rachel. So seven years are up and he comes And he's seeking his bride. Look in verses 21 to verse 30 and we see his first lesson. It says, And Jacob said unto Laban, Give me my wife, for my days are fulfilled, the seven years are up, that I may go in unto her. I want to consummate the marriage. And Laban gathered together all the men of the place and made a feast. And it came to pass in the evening that he took Leah, his daughter, and brought her to him, and he went in unto her. And Laban gave unto his daughter Leah Zilpah, his maid for an handmaid. And it came to pass that in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, What is this thou hast done unto me? Did not I serve with thee for Rachel? Wherefore then hast thou beguiled me? And Laban said, It must not be so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Fulfill her week, and we will give thee this also for the service, which thou shalt serve with me yet seven other years. And Jacob did so, and fulfilled her week, and he gave him Rachel his daughter to wife also. And Laban gave to Rachel his daughter Bilhah, his handmaid, to be her maid. And he went in, on to, in also unto Rachel, and he loved also Rachel more than Leah, and served with him yet seven other years. Here's his first lesson in life as a new believer, and it's a lesson that is learned from the school of hard knocks. Is from the school of experience. You see, in everything in life, there's an easy way and there's a hard way. 
There's God's way and there's my way. You know, if we surrender to God's word and to God's will, we're doing things God's way. But when we act on our own instincts and we behave on our own wits, well, that's our way. And our way most often is the hard way. It leads us into the school of human experience. And the school of human experience has some very tough lessons for us. Jacob requests his bride, verse 21. He says, give me my wife for my days are full that I may go in unto her. So far, so good. Nothing to look at there, really. And then verse 22 says, And Laban gathered together all the men of the place and made a feast. Now, when you see the word feast there, you think of, a, of a, perhaps a, a, a wedding reception, a supper, you know, with lots of food and all the rest of it. And I'm sure there was lots of food. But actually, the Hebrew word speaks here of a drinking party. It was a drinking party. Now, I want you to park that thought because it's an important thought. And then verse 23, I want you to notice the language. It says, they came to pass in the evening. It was dark outside when Leah, uh, when Laban took his daughter Leah and brought her to him. It was dark outside. Now sometimes people wonder, well, how did Jacob not know that his bride had been switched? You see, in our minds we have a western wedding in view. A modern wedding, you know, the, the groom stands at the front of the church, the church organ goes, you know, here comes the bride, the doors are opened, and in she comes walking down the aisle, and if he's a good groom, he'll turn around and look at his bride. You'd be surprised how many grooms don't look at their bride. A number of times I've had to say to them, look at her. <laughs> they're looking at me like they're marrying me. <laughs> look at her. And so they're, they're coming up the aisle. She's coming up the aisle. You know, she's got a very light veil on. He can tell who it is. She gets to the top. And then, you know, the veil is lifted. He knows who it is. You know, if some father tried to pawn off the uglier daughter, he knows that's not the one he's going to marry, doesn't he? He's going to say, when the pastor says, anyone know any just cause why these two should not be, he's going to say, me. This is not the woman I was marrying. And we tend to think of Jacob and Leah in that context. But understand something. That's not the way old, uh, the, the way ancient weddings worked. That's not the way this culture worked. You know, first of all, brides were not lightly veiled. They were heavily veiled. You couldn't see their features. Secondly, they were brought to the marital tent where the marriage was to be consummated and the tent was completely dark. There were no windows in the tent. There were no candles in the tent. It was a very heavy material that would have covered the tent to protect the privacy of the couple. And there was total darkness inside. Then thirdly, to compound the problem, it would have been nighttime. So not only does she have a heavy veil on her, not only does she come into the tent, which itself is very dark, but it's dark outside. They're in the country. There's no street lighting. It's dark outside. And then to make problems even worse, 
we discover that Jacob has been at a drinking party the whole time. He's blind drunk. When Leah is given to him. So you can imagine his shock the next morning. When he wakes up with a headache. Rolls over in his bed. And says good morning dear. And she opens her eyes. And those little crossed eyes are looking at her. At him. And she says good morning This is not what he was expecting. He is not a happy bunny. He's discovered that Laban was not to be trusted. You know, come to that, Leah was surely complicit in the deception. She went along with it. He had been deceived. Now remember, he was the deceiver. That's what his name means. Jacob means supplanter, cheater, deceiver, liar. He's reaping what he'd sown. You think about it. Jacob had deceived Isaac. How? By taking advantage of Isaac's blindness. Remember that Isaac's eyes were growing dim. And Jacob went out and and, and he got some fur and he put it on his arms to make it look like he was Esau. And he had the smell of the field upon his person. And his wife cooked venison and, and, and cooked the meat in the way that the father liked it. And he came into his old blind father and deceived him in the dark. What happens to Jacob? He's deceived in the dark. And Jacob was steered into this deception by his mother, Rebekah. Leah was steered into the deception by her father, Laban. And Jacob had pretended to be Esau in order to get what he wanted. And now what? Now we find that Leah pretends to be Rachel in order to get what she wants. You see, you reap what you sow, friends. Always. Always. And Jacob, you know, he must have been he must have been furious. And yet you don't you don't see that in the text. If you if you look at verse 25, you know, he's he's quite tempered and and quite restricted in what he says. He says, Wherefore then hast thou beguiled me? He says, Why did you trick me? He was likely that he he sensed. God's justice in his circumstances. Do you ever sense God's justice in your circumstances? You know, I, I love this time of year. Particularly when I was a teenager, I loved this time of year. Uh, coming into you know, the autumn, and uh, particularly whenever the apples are starting to be picked. And, uh, you know, I, obviously I didn't grow up in Armagh, uh, and uh, wasn't particularly familiar with uh, the apple orchards in Armagh. But I lived on a, on a road in Belfast, and, and just about half a mile down the road from where I lived were, were all the posh houses, all the people who lived out in the Antrim Road. Out, if you head out toward Belfast, see all those big posh houses along there. They all lived there, and, uh, you know, there was lovely homes there. And in some of those homes, they had the finest apple orchards in the city. And so come this time of year, you can almost smell the apples in the air. And teenage boys like to do nothing better than raid orchards. And so that was my thing. As soon as it it started getting dark, we'd get together and we'd plot a raid on the orchards. And we terrorized that community, stealing their apples. But we went one night to this particular address. And you know, the more difficult it was, the more fun it was. The more likely you were to get caught, the more exciting it was. 
And so we went to this address and, and we knew it was going to be a difficult hit. And we got to the gate and, and we decided to send two boys up the driveway to see what was going on. We were told that not only did this particular homeowner have apples, but he had pears. And if you could get into the greenhouse, he had grapes in the greenhouse. And we thought, brilliant, let's do it. So we sent two boys up the drive, sneaking up the drive, and we all stood outside waiting to get the nod to come in. And then all of a sudden, the two boys came hurrying around the back of the house, down the drive, and one boy slammed the gate behind him. The other boy hit the gate, fell over, cracked his head on the pavement, and we got up and we ran like Billy-O down the street. The homeowner got on his car and began to chase us in the car. And at one point, you know, we thought we had him beat. And I was like standing with my friends at the side of the road. We were puffed out, you know. And suddenly the car pulls up and the door flings open and the man jumps out. And lo and behold, it's the family minister. And I thought, if he catches me, I'm dead. My dad will go mad. We've been robbing the minister's house of all people. I mean, you know, that, that was like, that was the bottom of the, you know, the barrel. And so we spent the night, I spent the night running around from this minister. He was chasing us high and low. Anyway, he never caught us, thank the Lord. I did confess to my father later in life that I did steal apples. or tried to steal apples from the minister's house. But later on, move along 15, 16, 18 years, something like that. And uh, Hazel and I are moving from Dublin to Belfast. I'm going to pastor at Bray Hill Baptist Church. And in the course of making that move, we had bought a house, but our house sale fell through literally the day we were supposed to move into the house. And we were stuck. Long story short, the Presbyterian church to which our family belonged had, um, had this manse. The minister who had chased us in that particular evening, on that evening, had retired and gone back to his own property up the north coast somewhere. And the manse was sitting empty. And so they had this big, beautiful home and they wanted somebody to occupy it, fearing that somebody might get in and squat. And they heard about us and they contacted us and said, would you like to live in our manse while we're without a minister? And so we took them up on that very kind offer, went and lived in the manse and autumn came. And every day I was watching those apples grow. And I said to Hazel, you know, we're going to have a big apple pie. You know what? It's going to be great. And I was looking at it, looking at it. And then one night I drove home from church, pulled into the drive, and about four or five boys came running down the drive, (laughs) past the car, out into the street. And I got out of the car, and I just started laughing. I didn't even need to know. I didn't even need to look. I knew what had happened. I knew the orchard had been raided. And I laughed because I thought, that's so funny, because, you know, there was a day when I was the guy who was running down the drive, and I didn't bother chasing them. I just thought it was so funny. I reaped what I'd sown. Isn't it funny the Lord would have me to live in that very home and experience the same thing? And I think that's where Jacob was. You know, he, he sort of said, well, you know, he's resigned to it. I deserve this. I tricked my father in the dark. Now I've been tricked in the dark. I pretended to be my brother. She's pretended to be her sister. I deserve this. And even though he deserves it, and even though perhaps he's resigned to it, 
you know, Laban comes up with another plan. If you look in verses 26 and 27, when he complains, Laban says, It must not be done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Fulfill ye her week, and we will give thee this also for the service which thou shalt serve with me yet seven other years. Now, marriage feasts in the Bible will last about a week. And that's what, he, that's what he means when he says, fulfill her week. He's speaking about Leah. They've got married. He's consummated the marriage. They're, he's stuck with this bride, whether he wants her or not. And her father says, well, I'll tell you what. Let's finish the marriage feast. Let's finish the, the whole thing. Do the whole routine. Have the meals and the, and the company over and we'll do all of that. And he says, if you'll do that, and he says, and, and uh, serve me seven more years, I'll let you have Rachel at the end of the week. You can marry Rachel at the end of the week as well. So poor Jacob went to two weddings in one week. He got two brains. That's what happened. He served seven more years. And then, having married Leah, he's now married to his first love, Rachel. And they live together in a very unusual setup. Now Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 10 and 12, makes a very interesting commentary. On Jacob's arrival at Laban's door. It says, The Lord found him in a desert land, and in the waste howling wilderness he led him about. He instructed him, he kept him as the apple of his eye. And then it says, As an eagle stirreth up her nest, fluttereth over her young, spreadeth abroad her wings, taketh them beneath them on her wings, so the Lord alone did lead him, and there was no strange God with him. In other words, God brought him to this place. God put him in this situation where he was tricked. Where he was cheated. Where he was manipulated. And those illustrations that Deuteronomy gives concerning the eagle are very interesting. It talks about how the eagle stirreth up her nest. That's what an eagle does. It has a little eaglet up in the eyrie, up in the cliffs, way high up in the mountains. It has these little chicks, these eaglets. And after a while, the mother eagle realizes this eagle needs to fly the coop. He needs to get out of the nest. And so she starts to do something interesting. She begins to pull out all the feathers and the down and the things that make the nest comfortable. And she starts to unsettle the little bird. And it's not as, it's not as cozy as it was. And the little bird becomes restless and begins to shuffle about in the, in the nest. And then there comes a moment when the, uh, the mother eagle takes the little chick and places, her, uh, places the chick on her back. That little eaglet on her back. And then she launches out from the mountain. And soars high up with the little bird on her back. And when she gets high enough, she shakes the eaglet off. And the eaglet begins to topple. And it's rolling and it's frightened and it thinks it's going to die. When the mother bird comes sweeping beneath it and catches it on her back again. And then continues to do that until the little bird finally spreads its wings and discovers that it is also an eagle and capable of great flight. Now that's not, that's not very comfortable for the eaglet. It's not very enjoyable for the little bird. But it's necessary for the little bird. And friends, sometimes God brings us to a place which is less than comfortable in order to teach us some important lessons to shave bits off of us to make us more like Christ. 
In Jacob's case, he used some difficult circumstances to change him. He took him far away from home, far away from Beersheba, away from his mother's gaze, away from family surroundings, away from familiar things, to a, to a place where he was hardly known at all. And, and he must have felt a little bit lost. He must have felt a little bit alone as he made that huge journey of hundreds of miles from Beersheba to Padanaram. God used those difficult circumstances to change him. And he used some difficult people to change him. God does that too, you know. You know, sometimes God brings people into our lives that annoy us. Do you ever notice that? Do you ever meet somebody and they're just annoying? Every time you see them, you think, oh no, it's him. It's her. Or you hear the mention of their name and you can feel your heckles going up. Maybe meet somebody in church. Somebody you don't get along with in the fellowship. Somebody you do avoid. You know, you see them over here, so you go out that way. Or they're right that way, so you make a beeline for the door. You see, that person just bugs me. They annoy me. They ruin my day. Laban was that kind of person to Jacob. As indeed would Leah and Rachel be those kind of people to Jacob because their bickering and their squabbling and their rivalry is going to be a real thorn in his side. But I can tell you this, I've had people in my life who were a thorn in my side. I've had people in my life who just bugged the life out of me. There were people in my life in the past that I couldn't stand. But you know what? God brought those people into my life for what reason? To change me. To knock the pride out of me. To make me more like I hope the Lord Jesus. Sometimes God does that. He brings difficult people along to annoy us. So that he might change us. And sometimes he uses difficult consequences in our lives to change us. He did that with Jacob. And I'll remind you again how he reaped what he'd sown. How that everything had happened to him under Laban's roof paralleled with what happened under Isaac's roof where he was the culprit. And sometimes God forces us to live with the consequences of our own behavior. Sometimes God makes us sit in our own pig's will and think and reflect about how we got to that place. And he used difficult times to change him. Because Jacob's lessons in the school of hard knocks and experience don't end in verse 30 of this chapter. They're only beginning. In all he will spend not seven years in Laban's house, but 20 years in Laban's house. He still got 13 more years in that school. And those were difficult times. And that's how God would have it. You know, sometimes we wish God would just let up. That God would just allow the circumstances to change. You know, like if it was a genie in a bottle, we could just rub it and make three wishes and everything would be better. But friends, i got news for you. God is not going to allow your circumstances to change until you change. He's not going to allow your circumstances to change Until you change, he will keep you in that classroom as long as it takes to mold you and I 
into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. However long it takes. Could be 20 years. It could be longer. But God, friends, has all the time in the world. I wonder, are you going through some difficult circumstances in your life right now? Well, God has lessons for you there. Are there some difficult people in your life? Well, listen to me. Those people are the Spirit's teachers. Are you experiencing some difficult consequences as a result of your own actions? Well, listen, you can't complain. You reap what you sow. God is producing a harvest in your life. And maybe all of this is going to take some time. However long it takes to produce Christ-likeness in you is exactly how long it's going to take. May God bless these thoughts to your hearts this morning.